Well, when you found the treasure, um, turn to page 1198. It's a letter to Titus, and it's sandwiched between the letters to Tim and Phil. So page 1198, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. them an example by doing what is good in your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Thank you so much, Roger. Well, please do keep the treasure open in front of you. That will be very helpful to me. And also, the back of the notice sheet gives an outline of, uh, a very brief outline of where we're going today. Uh, Please can I add my welcome to Matt. My name's Andy Towner. I'm uh, one of the ministers here. And it's, uh, it's great to be here this morning. This is an exciting passage. Here we have real treasure. So let's pray that God might help us. Father, we praise you that you strengthen the weak. We praise you that you lift us up on wings like eagles. We praise you that you're the everlasting God who never grows tired or weak. So, Father, we pray that whatever our need is this morning, please might you meet us in your word and fulfill that need for Jesus' sake. Amen. Godliness matters. That's the message, the whole focus of Paul's letter to Titus. Godliness matters. And there's two kind of key reasons, two big streams of thought in the letter. The first is that the gospel's purpose is our godliness. The gospel is for godliness. The gospel, the truth about Jesus, is to make us godly. The second is that godliness commends the gospel. The purpose of our godliness is that the watching world might understand God's. They're both, uh, throughout the letter, they're both in today's passage, but we focused on the first last week. This week we focused more on the second, that godliness commends the gospel. So I want to ask that question on the sheet there. I want to ask, what adorns the gospel? What makes the gospel, the truth about Jesus Christ, 
look good to the watching world? What actions, what behaviours, what thought patterns, what speech styles, what sort of things make the truth about Jesus Christ attractive to our friends, our colleagues, our family, our classmates? Now, to get into that, I want to think about something else. Fashion. Fashion. What we, set, what we wear says a lot about us, doesn't it? It's why we care what we wear. So, for example, uh, a year ago when I got married, you'll have noticed if you were here <clears throat> that the theme color was blue. It's pretty easy because the chairs are all blue. So we had blue banners down the wall, uh, blue tie for the best man, blue tie for father the bride, father the groom, uh, blue dresses for the uh, bridesmaids. I've probably forgotten lots of things that were lovely and blue. But I wore a bright pink tie. Bright pink. There'd been a blue tie bought for me. And in all the kind of dealings before a wedding where you're all giving up all these ideas you want to have, and so you're all trying to sort of, you're all giving up everything so you can have a good day, the pink tie remained. Why is that? You might be asking that question for a whole lot of reasons, but why? Why did I dig my heels in on a tie? It was because I guess I know that what I wear says something about me, and I happen to think that the color pink is great, and it says good things about me, so I wore it. Why? Because what I wear... What we wear, it matters. I was struggling to find statistics on this, but in the US, I found some, de- some details. A prom dress in the US, so a dress for a 16, 17, 18-year-old girl at the end of time at college for the big prom. Average spend in Chicago last year on a prom dress, $180. That's well over 100 quid. Well over. Why? for something you're going to wear for eight hours. Why? Well, because what you wear matters. And you need a dress that adorns you. You need a dress that makes you look good to the watching world. And it works both ways, doesn't it? We're not just keen to look good to the watching world. We're really, really keen to avoid the fashion nightmares that seem to fill various newspapers. We're really keen not to embarrass ourselves with what we're seen to be wearing because bad fashion is really bad kudos. And it looks awful to the watching world. So you've got to love sisters. That The day before my first ever job interview, I don't know if you remember writing your first CV. It takes ages. It's all very stressful. The night before my first job interview, my older sister phones up and I think, oh, that's really nice, really nice. She's just going to encourage me. No, I was wrong. She'd Google searched my name, and she wanted to ring me up and say that if my employers had Google searched my name, they would come across at number one hit the meetings of a committee at Bristol University that I chaired, where they passed a motion condemning the trousers I was wearing because they were yellow and red check. And they were more worthy, they were deemed more worthy of Rupert Bear than me. If you, I don't know if it's still there, but the vote was 72 to 1, because my vote still counted. <laughs> Adults, of course, we learn to hide our cares about fashion a little bit deeper. We grow in subtlety, but we still care what people think. What you wear matters, because people think about us in the way of what we wear. But this is not all out of my head. This is in the passage. Look at verse 10 with me. It's a key idea of verse 10, the very end of verse 10. 
Paul's ethical instructions about godliness in the home are so that his hearers can live godly lives. Verse 10, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. They will adorn the teaching of God our Savior. The word there means make look good to the watching world. Paul says, wear good lives so that the gospel looks good to the watching world. You get the same thing in verse 8, where Titus, who's the church leader, the church planter, the senior elder or bishop, he must set an example in wholesome speech, in seriousness, in integrity. Why? Verse 8. So that those who oppose may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Titus must wear a good life so as to be unashamed before the watching world. Verse 5, the same thing is explicit for wives, so that no one will malign the word of God. The key question, the key question of this passage is this. What sort of behavior adorns the gospel? What sort of behavior adorns the gospel? Think about what you say. If your speech was a suit, would it be a handmade Savile Row suit or a Jimmy Savile shell suit to the watching world? Think about what you'd do. If your behavior was a clothing line, is it Armani or army surplus? Think about how you live. If your life's a pair of shoes, are they Jimmy Choo? Or have you just trodden in some? How does the watching world perceive your life? Now, we all have shockers. We all have wardrobe shockers. We all have life shockers. The joy of being church here together this morning, those who've confessed their sins and been forgiven, is we're the community of saved people, of redeemed people, of forgiven people. We're not the community of perfect people. None of us are. And that means we can hear ethical instruction without being defensive. Because our hope is in the salvation accomplished for us, we thought about last week, rather than our personal performance. Of course, this sort of talk is a great reminder that only one man never had a wardrobe shocker in his life. Only one man was perfectly clothed with good deeds all of his life. Only one man was morally perfect forever, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to not mishear this. But at the same time, Paul's thrust is really clear. Do our lives adorn the gospel? Do our lives as Christians make the gospel look good to the watching world? And now we've got the motivation. We can then get into the meat of the passage. Paul here gets very practical about what does godliness look like? What does it look like to live a godly life? What sort of behavior goes with being a Christian? Put it another way. What accords with sound doctrine? Uh, The word accords comes down in verse 1. Did you see it? So Paul says to Titus, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. It's a music word. So imagine that sound doctrine is kind of God. And it's God's orchestra. And the orchestra is playing in C major. 
So you've got chords of C and F and G. You've got notes C, D, E, F, G, A, B. There you are. You might get a D minor chord if you're feeling really, you know, pushing the boundaries. Imagine you are the trombone soloist and you storm on stage and you start on an F, off in F sharp minor. What happens? It sounds atrocious. It sounds awful. It sounds discordant. The notes just don't go together. The sound doctrine is C, D, E, F. And you're not playing any of those notes. The sound doctrine is chords of C, F, G. You're not playing anything near any of those chords. The trombone just wouldn't accord with the orchestra C major. And Paul's saying, live lives that accord with, that go along with, that chime with, that harmonize with. Sound doctrine, sound doctrine. Otherwise it's horrible. And he singles out five groups of people, which we'll have a look at in turn. Uh, Some of us might belong to more than one group. That's okay. So we get things for younger men, but also for, for workers. So some of us might fit into more than one group. And some concepts come to more than one group as well. So we all need to listen to all of them. There's some big themes through the thing. But let's take the five in turn. Firstly then, older men, looking at verse 2 here. The theme of verse 2 is gravitas. The theme of verse 2 is mature godliness. An older man would be respected and strong in faith, love and endurance. It's the famous trial, isn't it? Because endurance is like hope. It's faith, hope, and love. And the whole list we're going to see comes back to self-control time and time again because the Cretan culture was of lazy gluttony. So repeatedly Paul says, no, no, Christians will be self-controlled in a culture where there's no self-control. But older men will have a deep self-control honed over prayerful years of disciplined love for King Jesus. Those will be lives rich in deeply dignified holiness. But the key specific for older men, it seems to me, is the first word, temperate. It's the key specific. It doesn't come up in the other lists. And it's certainly not simply and directly about alcohol. It's a general word. It means restrained. It means modest. Can you see how that's going to fit with a a life of years and years of prayerful, joyful self-control. You'll end up a deeply careful, maturely godly, modest, restrained man. It means restrained and modest. Maybe it'll be different for all of us. We all have things we love to treat ourselves on. Is it cars? Is it holidays? Is it just general lifestyle? An older man will be dignified in holiness, mature in godliness, flowing from a honed self-control. What does that mean if we're an older man here? Uh, Well, first of all, let's just clarify. There's no age uh, limit here on older man. I think the clue is it's older. So if you're standing next to someone who's younger than you, you're older. And that could be in length of years as a Christian, or it could just be in life years. It's older. What does it mean? Well, maybe, maybe to pray through budgets with the word temperance in our heads. Maybe that's a good thing to go and do. Restrained and modest. Maybe to pray through our trajectories. 
It's a sobering thing for all of us, isn't it? To think, not just what am I like now, but where am I going? What am I going to be like in five, ten years' time? Here's a great picture from Paul of what a mature, godly, older man will look like. And if our trajectory is not there, there might be a sound doctrine. We need to remember, we need to get into our heads and then into our lives. Older men, do your lives adorn the gospel? What about older women? Well, older women here get great honor. The words here, verse 3, are, are astonishing. This reverent word, that is a priestly word. Older women are to be priestly towards God, carrying into daily life the demeanor of a priestess in a temple. You could say, practicing the presence of God. Again, this will flow out of years of Christian life, won't it? Years of godly Christian living. The vices to avoid here are slander and alcohol. Slander. It's a really, really hard one, slander, isn't it? It's hard to get the line right between a godly concern and an ungodly gossip. It's a difficult one. Because gossip is very tempting. We get quite subtle at it as we get older. And sometimes it's just quite fun to pass on sweetly undermining negatives and slip them into conversation somehow. I don't know if this is true, but I wonder whether the difference is between, um, between gossip and concern is, is our actions. I wonder whether if the news is to be acted on, if that information gets onto your prayer sheet, if they get sent a card, they get provided a meal, they get an email, if something happens, maybe that's the difference between just gossiping or actually a godly concern that gets acted out. I don't know. It's probably not that simple. But Paul's clear here. There's no sherry-fueled gossip for the older women. Instead, there's a teaching what is good. Teaching what is good. Especially teaching the younger women. Do you see that there? Then they can train the younger women, verse 4. I don't think it's a, a formal job being described here. It's a willingness to pass on the holiness that they have learnt over the years. It's a teaching by example of godly living so that the younger women can pick up what it means to be a godly lady. What does that mean for us if we're an older woman here today? Or if we're standing next to someone who's younger than us and therefore we are an older woman? What does it mean? Uh, pray for a priestly life full of the presence of God. Pray for that attitude to life that is the attitude of a priest in a temple. Maybe it means to recognize that if we're teaching by example, that necessarily means sharing lives. It's very hard to teach someone by example who you don't know and who doesn't know you. It's very hard to teach someone by example someone who you don't have any contact with. So the older woman's role in the congregation is to train the younger women. Maybe that's something to pray through for us. Maybe it's good to ask a trajectory question as well, the trajectory question. Where am I going in five years, ten years? And, and are there any doctrines, are there any things I need to remind myself of in my head and then in my life? That this is my trajectory. Older women, do your lives adorn the gospel?
Then we get younger women. They're encouraged to be loving homemakers. Loving and serving in the family is here commended. It's not something to be set aside for alternatives. It's not a second-class role for Paul, as it so easily can be seen to be today. Now, clearly, partly the focus on loving homemaking is because of the situation back in Crete, where the vast majority of all the young women would have been married homemakers. And in that context, they're reminded, don't be lazy like Cretans. Work hard at being a loving homemaker. There's no sense in this passage that to, to not be married is a second-class position. There's no sense in this passage that to be married without kids is a lower-grade type of person or a lower-grade marriage. Nothing of that. There is a real sense, though, of the importance of home. And do you notice something here that's stunning? The self-sacrificial service of running the home, that is deeply honoured deeply on it and in a context where it can be undervalued isn't it great to honour that I mean how can the Bible not honour self-sacrificial service when the Bible speaks of the self-sacrificial servant maybe we need to help each other be good at honouring that hard work what does this mean for us Um, If we're married with kids, I guess a number of things. Uh, Rejoice. Praise God for those gifts. Those are great gifts. Pray to be a godly servant in the home. Pray to rejoice in that work. Pray to be wholehearted at it. I think there's great encouragement here, by the way, that these things have to be learned. Do you spot that? These things have to be learned. Loving your husband and running your home, they may not come naturally to you. You may have to be taught them by older women. You may need people praying with you and reflecting with you and encouraging you and spurring you on. Often, they're very hard to do, and often that's, that's our fault as husbands. If you find this hard, look to the older women. Meet up with them. They'll train you. What does it mean if we're a young woman but we're not married or we're married without kids? What does it mean for us? Well, there's stuff here for all of us, isn't there? Do you see verse 5? Self-control and purity. Self-control and purity. That's probably enough to go and think about for a few days, isn't it? Plenty of application there for all of us here, I think. And maybe it's right that every time we hear teaching on marriage and kids and we're not married with kids, we just pray for a right thinking about all of that which is so hard. And then we work on our self-control and purity. Younger women, are your lives adorning the gospel? Do they make the gospel look attractive to the watching world? Well, here we go, young men. Do you notice this? I don't know if you spot this in the passage. Six commands for older men. Six. Older women get four commands. Younger women get six commands. Younger men get one. You see, Paul knew exactly what we were like. He knew exactly that younger men cannot hold more than one thought in their minds at a time. So Paul makes it very simple for you. Younger men, will you be self-controlled? Be self-controlled. Paul says that is the one thing. If you're going to work on one thing, just work on your self-control. 
Now, it's a big theme across the whole section. It's not that if you're not a young man, you can switch off, because we saw self-control has come out in some of these already, haven't we? Self-control, it really goes with sound doctrine. Uh, Self-control as a trombone is playing in C major. It sounds great. And it'll look different for different ages and stages and sexes. But the same big idea. Same big idea. So what about for a younger man? Is your life disciplined? Is your life under control or out of control? For some younger men, to be self-controlled is going to be less strident, less confrontational, more listening, more consulting. For some younger men, you just need to ask yourself the question, do you really think you can change the world before you're 30? Really? Young man, just one thing, self-control. Is your behavior adorning the gospel as a young man? And you see verse 7 and 8, it's very clear that Titus has to set an example in all of this. Paul is very clear that a godly preacher's talks are illustrated by a godly lifestyle. A godly elder's instruction is seen in their life. Just as we saw last week, we thought a lot last week. So it's not just casting things out there for other people to do. It's all for Titus to do too. The fifth group are slaves. Slaves. Um, that doesn't mean that slavery in the Bible. It's not the black African slave trade. You have to not read this as Paul saying all oh, everything that's ever been called slavery in the history of mankind is good and true. He's not saying that at all. Slaves back then would be doctors, estate managers, household workers. They'd be accountants. And those people, those workers, were encouraged to be diligent and trustworthy. To be diligent and trustworthy, that would adorn the gospel. They'd have a hard working commitment to their work and their boss. They'd be honest and reliable even when chances came to steal or to slack. They'd pursue the diligent trustworthiness that goes with the gospel. In one sense, it's a horrible question to ask, but why not ask the question, what do they say about you in the office? What do they say about you in the office? I know it's a horrible question. None of us particularly like thinking about that. Do they say, oh yeah, yeah, I I trust them? Or are you the one that always needs chasing up and constant supervision to hit a deadline? Do they say, I don't really think they're interested in our company much? Or do they say, you know, I really see they're trying to do a good job? Do they say, do you know what? Uh, We often disagree, but they're great at expressing that disagreement in an appropriate way. uh, With vigor sometimes, but with respect too. Or are you known for talking back, for having a big mouth? Do they say, yeah, I can really see the way they try and help the boss. They're trying to serve the team. Or do they say, oh, they're just in it for themselves. They'll, they'll be gone in 18 months, I can guarantee it. It's just all going straight on the CV. Wouldn't it be great as workers to pray that we could be diligently trustworthy for Jesus' sake, for Jesus' sake? Illustration. Do you ever get really stupid ideas and you know they're stupid and not know why? Well, here's one I've had for about 10 years and it's only last week that I really nailed why it was a stupid idea, okay? So about 10 years ago, I'm buying my first car. 
and I'm pretty poor, I'm just out of university, uh, and I'd like a nice car. So I thought to myself, I could get a company to sponsor me on my car. You know, I could sell rights to my bumpers, and they could, they could advertise something, a bit like a taxi or a Formula One car. You know, maybe I should write some letters to some companies and, and, and see if I could get, I don't know, what do you reckon, 200 quid a year for my bumpers? Maybe the whole car for a grand. I have boots, the chemist, on my car, on the top and on the bumps and everything. And it's one of those ideas that it keeps on coming back through the last 10 years. And I, I, I'm sure it's a stupid idea. And last week I realized why. Now, why is it a stupid idea? The answer is because I might crash. The answer is I might speed. I might zoom down the highway, the, the, the motorway, at 120 miles an hour. Or I might be really slow and potter along at 18 miles an hour when clearly the speed limit is 30, which is pretty annoying. Or I might wrap it around a lamppost or whatever. And that really would not adorn the name of the company that's on my bumper. Imagine if my car was covered in Boots logos and I'm zooming down the motorway or dead in a ditch or whatever scratches and bumps and broken mirrors. It's a stupid idea because how could they trust me in my car to adorn their name? The thing about this passage is, as Christians, we do wear bumper stickers all day, every day. We bear the name of Christ. We have a bumper sticker that says, I follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. And that begs the question, what's our driving like? What's our driving like? And this passage says, here's what your driving should be like. Here's what it should be like. And it's all about what fits with sound doctrine. That's what's going on in chapter 2, verse 1. It's all about what goes with it. Let's just take an illustration of that as we close. Let's take the little phrase repeated in verses 5 and 9 about be subject. Be subject. Do you spot that? For some, it's a, it's a real red rag, that one, isn't it? Wives are to be subject to their husbands. Workers are to be subject to their bosses. It might have jumped out at some of us here. Culturally, I think it probably does. Well, how does that fit with sound doctrine? How does that fit with Bible truth about God? Well, let me show you. Sound doctrine is to believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. And within that Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, he subjects himself fully to the Father's will. All the time, in every situation, on every issue, even to dying on a cross. Even to death, he subjects himself willingly to his Father's will. Do we look at that and think, hmm, no, that just, sorry, that, that demeans you, Jesus. I think you're worth a bit less than the Father because you submit to his will. Do we worship and praise and adore and love and serve and speak of the Lord Jesus less? Because he's the one who subjects himself to another's will? I take it the answer is no. 
We've just sung, haven't we? Thine be the glory, risen, conquering son. We do none of that. <laughs> Logically, you see, within the doctrine of God, to submit is not to mean the submitter. To subject yourself is not to make you of any less worth. To subject yourself doesn't make you second class. To submit has no effect on your value. None. On the contrary, on the contrary, in Philippians chapter 2, it's precisely because he submitted. It's precisely because he subjected himself to the Father's will that the Lord Jesus Christ is risen to reign with the name above all names that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. He earns that name. He deserves that name because of willing submitting. That's just a little one, isn't it? A little way of saying that these truths here, they go with sound doctrine. We haven't all got to be PhDs to get there. The brilliant thing is that the Holy Spirit, through Paul, has done all the doctrinal work for us. He's chased down every single truth about God forever and ever and ever and said, here we are. Here are your summaries. And young men, you've only got one to remember, so it shouldn't be too hard. Here we go. You haven't got to go and read all those books, although they're probably great books. You haven't got to go and write PhDs, although I'm sure they could be useful. Here you've got it. Here is a summary of all the application of all the doctrine you could ever find in the whole world. Summarized for us by groups. We've just taken one. We've just taken one. And I know that's a big issue. That's why I thought we'd look at it. But do you see that sound doctrine leads to a godly life? And the purpose of that godly life is for the watching world. Because our godly lives, there are prom dresses. Our godly lives, there are pink ties. Our, our godly lives, they're those cars. And all day, every day, we drive around in a car that says, Jesus Christ is my Lord. The question is, how's our driving? Is our driving adorning the gospel? And this passage says, do you know what? Let's pray about this. Let's work on this together for his honor. Why don't we pray? Father, we praise you for these instructions to Titus, who was to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And it's our prayer, Father, that we might live in a way that accords with sound doctrine, in ways that adorn the gospel. Help us, Father, please, to hear what you're saying to us, to remember these truths. And how we long, Father, that by your Spirit, you might be always and ever changing us to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ, who embodied all this sound doctrine. And we ask in his name. Amen.